Right, our New Testament reading and our sermon text are one and the same this morning. We'll be reading from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Listen or follow along. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. What a day. What a day. Glorious day. Nothing can compare, right? Nothing can compare to Jesus. And it's good to see everybody. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you all next week. <laughs> Laughter's good, isn't it? It's good to laugh, right? It's good to laugh. I, I mean, I, and that was a serious comment. I, but, but the Bible tells us, you know, it, 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 that a merry heart is good medicine, right? Uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God, God laughs. God's laughing at the foolishness of people who continue to reject Jesus. Um, laughter's good. Um, I, a, I study of Ecclesiastes. It's a time to mourn, time to laugh. I love to laugh. I love to laugh. Some of the guys that uh, really make me laugh a lot are uh, Brother Seth Dillon and his buddies at uh, Babylon B. They write these satirical headlines, and I read this one yesterday. This is, I, I had to share this with you. had to start with it. I know I'm probably breaking all the Easter sermon rules here, but uh, listen to this. Listen to this headline. Roman soldier assigned to guard tomb of some Jewish carpenter looking forward to uneventful weekend. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? These guys are amazing. They are so funny. Here's the first paragraph of the article. <laughs> I love this. Local Roman soldier Plinius was given his guard assignment for the weekend and was delighted to see he had been entrusted with guarding the tomb of, quote, some Jewish carpenter guy, end quote, as he had be able to get some shut-eye and have a nice relaxing weekend. <laughs> oh, man, little did Plinius, Plinius and his fellow soldiers know that before their relaxing duty was over, they would experience, number one, an earthquake, number two, the supernatural dislodging of the huge stone that enclosed the tomb of the Jewish carpenter guy, 
And number three, a fear-inducing encounter with an angel whose appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, resulting in every one of them fainting like dead men. As we've said before, talking donkeys are nothing. We believe this happened. We believe this happened. And we can laugh with, with the Babylon Bee guys at the people who don't believe it happened, who reject this book and the God of this book and the Lord that this book tells us about. Needless to say, this guard duty was not what the Roman soldiers expected. What happened on this weekend 2,000 years ago always blows me away. And I always wrestle with even even attempting uh, to preach about it. Um, Because I often find it difficult to wrap my peanut brain around it. When I consider that all my sins, every single one of them, past, present, and future, were paid for on that Friday when Jesus breathed his final breath from the cross. And then on Sunday morning, my justification, my right standing with God was confirmed and solidified by his glorious resurrection I just, I just stand in awe and gratitude and brokenness and humility and adoration before our great and gracious and sovereign and omnipotent God. Behold our God who has done this for us. On this Easter together, I want us to take some time to ponder corporately some of the theological ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we've done this before on Easter mornings from the past, but I'm imitating what we've recently studied. I'm imitating our beloved apostle Peter, and I want to stir up your sincere minds by way of reminder. Before we pray and ask God to, to, to teach us and encourage us, uh, let's recognize two basic points about this day. Number one, the fact of the resurrection is a historical matter. It actually happened. It is not legend. It is not fable. It is not some myth to try to help us feel better, nor is it satire. It was not a secret. As Paul said in his defense before King Agrippa in Acts 26, this was not done in a corner. There were 500 eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6. The tomb was empty. The Roman guards knew it. The Jewish chief priests knew it. They paid off the guards after they revived from their fainting spell 
to lie about it, according to Matthew 28. The dead body of Jesus was never produced. Jewish believers in the one true God who became flesh, who had been worshiping on Saturday for all of their lives and all of their history as a people, suddenly began gathering and worshiping on Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, because of their new and confident belief in the resurrected Son of God. So, the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is a solid historical matter, and it is undisputed. You say, well, people dispute it. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, but not in reality. Secondly, while the fact of the resurrection is is a historical matter, the meaning, the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus is a theological matter, okay? And that's what we will want to begin to unpack today and continue next Sunday. This is a two-parter, okay? Easter probably, did, I mean, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday in reality for the Christian, okay? So we will begin this Sunday, and it'll be like a, like a survey class, okay? I've got 12 points so far, so far, 12, okay? I've got another week to work on it, okay? But right now I've got 12. My goal today is to cover seven. That's what's on your seat saver. If you're, if you're using the seat savers there, you see the seven points. That's my goal is to uh, get seven today. But since we're continuing next week, if I don't get to number seven or don't get to number six or whatever, we can pick up where we left off. But um, I pray that this will be an encouragement for you as we ponder together the theological ramifications of the glorious, wonderful, beautiful, salvation-giving, justifying, justification-sealing resurrection of Jesus. There's not enough adjectives for it, so I'll stop there. Let's pray together. Father, please, in the name of your Son, in the name of your risen Son, Jesus, help me preach this message to my beloved church family and to the guests that are with us today. And may the truth of the resurrection of Jesus bring life to dead hearts. And may my brothers and sisters be encouraged. And I'll give you all the thanks and glory for that. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together here today be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, the theological implications of the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. For without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity. Okay? 
All of the truth claims of our faith are linked, vitally linked, to the fact of the resurrection. Paul recognized this 2,000 years ago when he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ has proclaimed his raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Okay? You follow, follow what Paul is saying here. If there's no general resurrection of believers, then, then Christ hasn't been raised. Okay? And he was attacking those who claimed there was no general resurrection for those who, the true believers in God. He goes on, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They have no hope. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate supporting fact of the Christian faith. Everything about Christianity, everything that we hold dear about our faith, everything that we believe the Bible teaches, everything about the identity, mission, and message of Christ is absolutely dependent upon the truth of the resurrection. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, the resurrection of our divine Lord from the dead is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Perhaps I might more accurately call it the keystone of the arch of Christianity. For if that fact could be disproved, the whole fabric of the gospel would fall to the ground. Uh, let me reveal some of your ages here. How many of you remember clotheslines. Okay, yeah, that well, we got a lot of clothesline people. I can remember my mom going out with this basket under on her hip there and, and hanging up our wet clothes on the clothesline. They would, the, the sun and the wind would dry them. And before the days of dryers, or maybe before, in our family, before the days we could afford a dryer, maybe, I don't know. Maybe there were dryers, we just didn't have one. But uh, you, would, you would hang the clothes up on the clothesline and the, the wind and the sun would dry them out. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce uses that clothesline illustration to, to illustrate what we're talking about right here on this point. He says this, quote, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a bit like a clothesline that supports the clean wash. If the line falls, you know what happens to the clothes. They all go in the ground, you got to wash them again, okay? If the line falls, all the clothes fall. Well, if the line falls, the doctrines of the faith fall. If the line of the resurrection falls... All the doctrines that are linked to the resurrection, which is pretty much all of them, they fall as well. But where the resurrection stands, everything else stands with it. As Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. 
Let's stop now. Go home. Go hide your eggs, eat your eggs, eat your ham, whatever you're going to do today. Get with your family. Forget. Let's just quit right now. Because the preaching's in vain. And your, your faith is in vain. Everything you believe, it's in vain. It's useless. It's futile. It's worthless. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we are totally wasting our time here. If Christ is not alive, then everything we do as a church is pretty much futile. And, Paul adds, to make matters worse, we're all going to hell. We're still in our sins. If Jesus is just another dead, crucified person of which there were thousands in that day, if he's just another one of the bunch of dead, crucified guys and his resurrection is a lie, then no atonement has been made. And there is no forgiveness of sins. So, dear unbeliever, if you're here today, if Christ has not been raised, don't patronize us. Pity us. Consider us fools. Because that's what is what we would be if Christ has not been raised from the dead. But since he has been raised from the dead, then we encourage you, dear unbeliever, to admit that you are a sinner and receive God's gift of forgiveness by confessing the risen Jesus as Lord today, right now. Don't put it off any longer. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed your next breath. Every breath you take is a gift of grace, allowing you time to repent and trust Jesus. Today's the day. Today's the day. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation of the identity of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation of his identity. Romans 1.4, Paul tells us that Jesus, quote, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, listen, by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection declared Jesus Son of God. The resurrection declared that what Jesus had said during his life was true. Jesus said he was the Son of God, and his resurrection testifies and declares with holy authority that his claim is true. The resurrection proves that Jesus was and is ultimate truth. Every word he said is true. Every word he said can be trusted. The resurrection shouts the lordship of Christ. Romans 14, 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You know what's so sad? Every person in the world has the opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord and be born again and be saved and be a Christian. And, and, and many, 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 the, the, the way is broad, Right? The way is broad. There are many that feel that broad highway that don't do that. 
But then after their day, I guess what? Jesus is going to be their Lord. That's kind of sad when you think about it, isn't it? They had the opportunity for him to be Lord while they were alive. And then they could have experienced the benefits of that for all eternity. But they say, no, I'm going to continue to be my own Lord. And then they die, and guess what? One of the, the first thing they do is bow the knee to Jesus. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, dead or alive. Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead. So you think you're getting out of the lordship of Jesus? Nah, you're not. You're not. He will be Lord of you in death. That's one of the saddest things I could think of. I, I wish I could express it more, um, more urgently to move your heart. To confessing Jesus as Lord now while you're still alive. According to the writer of Hebrews, in his detailed argument in Hebrews 9, I was talking to Dee the other day about the study of Hebrews. What a great book. Whatever you, women are studying Hebrews, man, what great, great, godly, studious women we have here studying Hebrews. And in Hebrews 9, we read about. Uh, how the resurrection confirms Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. Once again, telling us who Jesus is. Son of God. Lord of the living and dead. Mediator of the new covenant. And ultimately, the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Remember what Thomas said? You know, Jesus appeared to the disciples. Thomas was absent. I don't know what he was doing, uh, maybe reading the Babylon Bee, I don't know. But he wasn't there. And, uh, uh, and then when he came back, the disciples, we've seen Jesus. And he said, no, no way, no way. Unless I see his wounds and put my hand in his side, I'll, I'll, I'll never believe. And Jesus in his grace allowed that. And Thomas saw his wounds and put his hand in his pierced side. And said, my Lord and my God. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that Jesus is God. So it, it confirms everything. The resurrection confirms everything the Bible says about who Jesus is. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus results in his exaltation as head of the church. Colossians 1.18, we read this. And he is the head of the body. The church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, firstborn from the dead, firstborn from the dead, the first resurrected person. You say, oh, no, 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 uh, contradictory statements in the Bible. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Yeah, but Lazarus died again, okay? All those people we read about being raised from the dead, they, they died again. Jesus was raised and death no longer had a hold on him. He was raised and didn't die again. So that's why the Bible can call him the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, in everything, in everything, everything, everything. Greek word for everything literally means, guess what? Everything. So every aspect of your life, in every aspect of your life, he might be preeminent. First. Primary. 
Note the connection of Christ's resurrection, firstborn from the dead, to his headship over the church. He is head of the body. Our response to this truth is, is simply worship and obedience. The answer is yes, Lord. Now, what's the question? <laughs> you know? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to, 23, 19 to 23, Paul wants us to know this. He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that's a theological mouthful of a sermon text right there or a scripture text, which I'm not going to attempt to unpack everything there right there. But what I want you to see from that, those few verses, is that Christ is not only head of the church. Yes, he's head of the church in a very unique and special way. We are his body. He is the head. But he's also, according to this text, ultimately head over all things. God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's why everyone will ultimately bow the knee to Jesus. He's the Lord of the living and the dead. Rejecting Jesus in your life doesn't get you out of being under his lordship. You will be under his lordship when, after you die. Please hear that. Number four, the resurrection of Jesus brings restoration to the human condition. The restoration of Jesus brings restoration to the human condition. Jesus rose as a man, a physical male human being. They could touch him. He ate food. He was not a spirit being. He was not an hallucination. He rose as flesh and blood, just like he died. He died as flesh and blood. What does Hebrews tell us? Uh, quoting from the, from the Scripture, from the Old Testament, a body you prepared for me, a body that could be nailed to a tree. And then he rose as a flesh and blood human being. Now ponder this with me. This is important. Don't just gloss over this. This shows us our Lord's permanent identification with humanity. Consider 1 Corinthians 15, 20, where we're told that, that quote, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits of those who have died. What does that mean? It means simply this. 
that Christ's resurrection is the prototype for our resurrection. Okay? We will receive a glorified body just like Jesus did. He is the first fruits of a great resurrection harvest to come that includes every believer in the one true God since time began. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, when He appears, either at His second coming or when we see Him, okay, when He appears, we shall be like Him. Let me correct that. I said that wrong. At His second coming, people who die before that time are in what we call the, uh, the intermediate, intermediate state. You don't automatically get your glorified body when you die, if you die before the return of Christ. You're in an intermediate state. You're with Jesus in some wonderful, glorious way. But we don't get our bodies till Jesus returns. And that's what John is, is talking about here. Okay, I knew that didn't sound right when, I first, when it first came out. Okay, so I always try to be gracious with people who talk about you know, people in their bodies now. And Okay, I just nod. And, but really, theologically, no. No, we don't get our bodies until Jesus returns. When he appears to everyone, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Kenneth Sample said, quote, The resurrection was not a flight from the human condition, but rather its glorious restoration and fulfillment. That is to say, the restoration of the original sinless state of the first Adam was accomplished by the death and resurrection of the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Glenn Scrivener describes it. And I'm really growing to love this guy. I've recommended his books a couple of times. Here's what he says about this. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people as the first fruits of a cosmic crop. He displayed the quality of the coming harvest. Walking with them, talking with them, cooking for them. Remember the breakfast scene? Okay, eating and drinking with them. All who saw him were awed and overjoyed. In all he did, he showed them the kind of resurrection life that he had pioneered. This is what every believer in the whole world can look forward to. A walking, talking, eating, drinking, communal, joyful, eternal bodily life with Jesus at the center. I, I get goosebumps just reading that. That's what's awaiting us. That's what's awaiting us, dear believer. A walking, talking, eating, drinking, communal, joyful, eternal bodily life with Jesus at the center. Now let me ask you something. What does that sound like? That sounds a little bit like church life 
now. Yeah, we haven't perfected it yet, and we've got a long way to go, but that's what we're practicing. That's what we're striving for. That's why we call church heaven practice. The church is the outpost of heaven on earth. And yes, we're still a bunch of sinners, and we've still got a long, long way to go. But as a local body, this is our goal, a walking, talking, eating, drinking, communal, joyful, eternal, bodily life with Jesus at the center of who we are. Now, is that not church or what? That's church. That's church. And church is practice for what awaits us. Jesus is the first fruits of that. Man, are you looking forward to that or what? Man. So if we are, I'm assuming you would say yes to that. If we are, then let's strive, confessing all of our sinful limitations to having that right now. Are you with me in that? (laughs) Let's be the church that God wants us to be with his son at the center. Hallelujah. Man, I love my church family. Number five, the resurrection of Jesus proclaims justification for every believer. The resurrection of Jesus proclaims, and I use that word intentionally, proclaims. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Justification for every believer. In his discussion about the faith of Abraham, remember Abraham was kind of a prototype of justification by faith. Uh, Paul writes these inspired words in Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 22. It says, he says, that is why he, his being Abraham, that is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, there's the link to the resurrection, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay? Now, I've always called this verse the package deal of salvation. Do you see it? Verse 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. In other words, he, he died for our sin. That's referring to the cross. He was, God delivered him over. Okay, I think uh, Paul talks about that in Romans 8. God delivered him over, you know, to Pilate and the authorities that he would be nailed to a cross. So he was delivered up for our sins. And he was raised. Okay, there's the resurrection. There's the whole weekend. Delivered up on Friday. Raised on Sunday, he was raised for our justification. And by our justification, I mean, books have been written on justification, so I won't do it justice here, but just referring to our our not guilty standing before God. Okay, so the question is, how does this square with Romans 5.9? Because when I go to Romans 5.9, I read... Since therefore we have been justified by his blood. And blood always refers to the death of Christ, right? Okay. Since we have been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved 
by him from the wrath of God. So the question is, uh, for the uh, inquisitive believer, are we justified by his death or are we justified by his resurrection? Which is it? And the answer that, I've, that I want to offer you today is that they are both vitally connected to it and necessary for it. That is why I chose the word proclaims in the point on your seat saver instead of a word like provides. Let me try to explain that choice of, of wording. Christ's death provided or paid for our justification. His death paid the bill for our forgiveness, uh, paid the bill for God's declaration of not guilty, uh, paid the bill for our right standing before God. We now have peace with God. We have access to God through the blood of Jesus. The cross provided that. Christ's resurrection proclaims it. Christ's resurrection proclaims our justification in that it shows and proves that God accepted his son's death as satisfaction or payment for our sins. As James Montgomery Boyce said, quote, the resurrection is God's evidence that the penalty for our transgressions has been fully paid by Jesus. Hallelujah. Here's a great quote from from R.A. Torrey, one of the old guys. He said this, When Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died in him. We got a picture of that in the baptism, right? You go under the water. Rhett went under. Death with Jesus. When he arose, and the, the baptism shows us that too, when he arose, he rose as my representative, and I rose in him. Baptism pictures that. I look at the cross of Christ, and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open sepulcher and the risen and ascended Lord, and I know that the atonement has been accepted. There, are no longer, there no longer remains a single sin on me. Let that sink in. Any of you, felt, dear beloved brothers or sisters, that might be still hanging on to guilt or shame, there, are, there no longer remains a single sin on me. No matter how many or how great my sins have been, my sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that covers them is as high as heaven. My sins may have been deep as the ocean, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that swallows them up are as deep as eternity. Hallelujah. What a Savior is Jesus, our Lord. Number six. Hang with me. Almost there. The resurrection of Jesus brings about the elimination of the dominion of sin. Note the key word, dominion of sin, because we all still struggle with sin, right? Okay, when we get saved, we don't become perfect. We are growing in that 
toward that ultimate perfection. When we see him, we will be as he is, right? Okay, but we're still fighting, battling, growing in our hatred of sin. We're still fighting it. So focusing on that word dominion. The resurrection brings about the elimination of the dominion of sin, the rule of sin over us. Sin is no longer our ruler or our Lord. Jesus is. And we've confessed that, right? Okay. And have I told you, have I told you yet, you unbelievers, after you die, if you don't receive, you'll confess that after you die. I've already mentioned that, right? Okay, I just want to make sure I've mentioned that. Okay. In Romans 6, verse 5, we read this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's that union, union with Christ. In his death, our old life is dead, resurrected, new life. We're new. If anyone be in Christ, new creature. Old things are gone. Behold, all things are new. Okay? We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sin is no longer our master. The dominion of sin has been eliminated. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the good news is that Jesus' resurrection has broken the crippling power of sin over all those who repent and trust him for salvation. The resurrection power of Christ empowers believers to live in dependence, obedience, and gratitude to God. As we've sung for many years, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Or as we've said in more modern days, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. The dominion of sin has been eliminated. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his, and he is mine, bought by the precious blood of Christ. Amen. Last one, number seven. Last one for today. We'll pick up next week, but last one for today. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees the annihilation of death. Death has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Whereas by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, we've already talked about that, then at his coming, his return, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because of the resurrection, death will be done away with forever. We need not fear it anymore. We pass through the valley of the shadow of death, as David told us in Psalm 23. Though we die physically, according to Jesus, not one hair of our head will perish. John 11, Jesus said these great words to a grieving sister at the tomb of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That question still echoes down through the halls of history, doesn't it? Do you believe this? What about it? Do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he is your only hope for resurrection life after your body dies? If not, today's the day to start believing it. Today's the day of salvation. When the old Reformed pastor Richard Baxter lay dying and his friends came to see him, one of the last phrases he uttered on his deathbed was in answer to the question, Reverend Baxter, how are you? His response, almost well. In other words, to quote 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Well, we'll stop there. We've got at least five more to go. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get those next week. If I'm alive, if we're alive, if Jesus hasn't come back. I'll close with one more quote by Glenn Scrivener, who's fast becoming one of my favorite authors. He writes this, Jesus has drawn the sting of death and risen again in victory. He has fallen into the ground as the seed and sprung up new as the first fruits of a bumper crop. He has died the death belonging to Adam, but risen again at the head of a new humanity, i.e. the church. He has defeated Goliath and won victory for his people. Death, therefore, does not have the last laugh. Christ does. And in him, so do we. We don't cower before death. We don't make a few nervous jokes in the face of the inevitable. We can look death square in the eye and laugh at it. And all's well that ends well. So, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Yes, Lord, we do thank you for the victory 
that we have been given in Jesus. We thank you that, that Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, one day we will be reunited with him. And we will be more fully alive than we've ever been. So God, we thank you for the victory of the resurrection. We ask your blessing now on our time at this table. May our communion with the risen Lord as we remember what he's done for us and with each other as we gather be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.